<laughs> so, um, really believe that, um, you know, we go through this every year, don't we? And, um, you know, we hear the stories of Christmas and, you know, we, we, most of us know the stories of Christmas and very few people, even in this secular age that we live in, they, they, they do know the, the, the stories really. And uh, maybe they don't know what it's all about, though. Maybe they don't know the real reason. Maybe we don't know what it's all about. And this Christmas, we really want to take you on a, on a real journey. Every single one of us, however many times you've heard Christmas sermons and the lead up to Christmas and the stories about Christmas, we really, want, really believe that the Holy Spirit wants to take us all on a journey because Jesus made that ultimate journey, didn't he? You came from heaven to earth to show the way. What way was that? What was that all about? We're all learning. We're all discovering. And as you go on any journey, you learn, you discover, you take note, you observe. And that's really what we want to do uh, throughout this, uh, this, this series. We want to invite you to come on a journey that God has got us all on. And it began with Jesus coming. We want to you to think about why the gospel writers wrote what they did and how they set the scene for Jesus coming into the world. If you look at the Gospel of Luke, don't look at the Gospel of Luke yet, we're going to look, look at Matthew. But if you look at the Gospel of Luke in, in the second chapter of Luke, you see there that Luke is writing to his audience and he begins, and we'll do this next week, he begins with, in those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree. And Luke is setting the scene and putting it in the right context with the ruling authority at the time, which was the Roman Empire and the personality of Caesar Augustus or Octavian. Uh, and we will hear about him uh, next, week, next week. But he was showing how Jesus coming to this world was really going to impact not just the structure of society in that day, but for all time. But for all time, for every single human being for all time, and not just for human beings, for the spiritual realms and all that. And we'll go into that in a, in a little while. But I want you to look at the way that Matthew introduces his story today. Matthew chooses a different tack. He's got a, a different audience. He's writing primarily for the Jews. And therefore, he writes and appeals to them in a way that they can relate to, in a way that they fully understand so that they can grasp more the reason why Jesus came. So turn, if you will, to your, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1. It says this, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem, asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem, he called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod 
call for a private meeting with the wise men. And he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. And he told them, go, go to Bethlehem. Search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I too can go and worship him. And after this interview, the wise men went their way. And the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. And it went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. Oh, Emma mentioned joy earlier on. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary. And they bowed down and, and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route. For God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return because Herod is going to search for the child and kill him. That's the setting. Why does Matthew set the scene in this way? Why does he mention the fact that Herod was the ruling king at the time? Where Luke mentions Caesar Augustus, why does Matthew mention Herod? What significance does that have for the Jewish people? You might be thinking, well, what significance does it have for me in 2023? Uh, it wouldn't make a great deal of difference, maybe you think. We'd be mistaken if we thought that. Certainly for the Jews living at that time, it had great significance. And to understand, you have to know a little bit more about the sort of guy that Herod was. I've got a few slides up here that we're going to show you. Let me set the scene for you and fill you in with a bit of background. Uh, you know, this is not a bit of filler. Uh, don't get bored in it because uh, it's, it builds up a picture of who this guy was. And as you see on... The first slide, thanks, Mary. There he is. There's Herod. The personality of King Herod. Herod brought in an age of real political intrigue. The whole culture was suppressed. Uh, there was economic hardship for the Jews, and there was a darkness that was coming across the earth, a real tapestry of evil into the lives of, uh, of the Jewish people. And here's a picture of King Herod. This is what artists thought that he looked like. He was an absolutely fierce warrior, merciless with all who stood in his path. His armies besieged Jerusalem in AD 37. They were backed by Rome. They were equipped by Rome, and he led 11 battalions of infantry and 6,000 cavalry soldiers into Jerusalem and conquered. The Roman Empire, like we've said, ruled at that particular time, and uh, it was their way to effectively rule by installing in each region, in each province that they were the empire over, a puppet, a puppet leader, a puppet king, uh, some would say a client king in that way who would represent their empire and subjugate all the people underneath them with terror and just absolute awfulness 
as long as he was allowed to do his own treacherous dealings as well. And this was a wonderful arrangement for Herod. Uh, he had a wonderful arrangement with uh, Caesar Augustus at this time. And the Roman Empire stretched as far from Britain to India. It was a massive Roman Empire. And Herod took Jerusalem by force. And he massacred thousands by doing this. And he began a rule of awfulness. And very few people opposed it openly. And if they did, they were executed. He even had his own son executed because he thought that his son was planning to overthrow him in fact Caesar Augustus got to hear about this in Rome and it's recorded that Caesar Augustus actually said it's safer to be Herod's pig than his son as we know the Jews don't eat pork so the pigs were pretty safe but his son wasn't Herod was not actually fully Jewish he was a half Jew his family line was from it was Edomite Arab so he was this client king installed by the Romans not welcomed at all by the Jewish certainly not after the way he'd come to the throne they didn't want to recognize his authority they didn't want to recognize him he was there because Caesar allowed him to be there his reign was marked by the erection of buildings and monuments paying homage to Caesar all around the place. And he did this to curry favor with Caesar Augustus. Uh, he wanted uh, Caesar to know that he was a faithful king. And he, as long as he was there, he was racketeering, he was making a profit, he was ruling, and he was living a life of opulence. Everywhere he went, he would erect altars, statues, stones, inscriptions to Caesar. He did this because... We remember at that time, Caesar Augustus declared himself to be a god, to be the god whom everyone must worship, whom everyone must bow down. All hail King Caesar. That's what everybody was expected to, uh, to say. And the Jews hated this. It was a major problem to them because he was a half-Jewish king who was... In a Jewish land, a land where an ancient Lord had been given to an ancient leader, Moses, have no other gods before me. Do not create any graven image. Do not bow down to that, bit, that graven image. And here, there were graven images going up everywhere, left, right, and center, to this guy in Rome who was expecting everyone to bow down. And so there was a real oppression coming upon the people and fear. King Herod did not even try to gain their favor. He wasn't bothered about the Jewish people. All he wanted was to do his own bidding and to be subject to Caesar. But as long as Caesar allowed him to be ruthless and cruel and selfish and wicked amongst the people, and that's exactly what he was. Now we know that from Jewish history, we know that the Jews saw the greatest king that they'd ever had was King David. And King David would always be the greatest king that they would ever have. And Herod knew this. Herod knew this. And he knew that there was a story when 
King David was, well, David was fleeing from the king at the time, Saul, and he was fleeing for his life, and he went up the mountain that we now modern day call Masada, and he camped out halfway up that mountain in a cave, and he was really hiding in fear. And Herod knew this. It was, just, it was a regular story. Everybody knew about this story. David was running for his life. And he crawled up the side of this mountain and he'd hid himself from Saul. So the greatest king in the history of Israel up to that point had spent time hiding and living in a cave on the side of Masada. Is that, is that slide gone? King Herod knew this. And so he decided, well, this is your greatest king, is it? Spent time living and hiding on the side of the mountain, did he? Well, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to live in splendor on top of it. And so what he did, where David lived in fear and squalor perhaps in that cave, Herod said, I'm going to live in opulence and luxury. And so he had a palace built three stories high, right on top of the mountain, where David had bare stone walls of his cave, Herod had marble designs inlaid around the walls of his palace, of himself and of Caesar. He had hot and cold running water. If he wanted a bath, he could have one. He had solid marble columns imported all the way from Italy and Italian frescoes painted on the ceilings. And to top it all, on the very top of the mountain, he had his own swimming pool probably be uh, one of these infinity ones where it looks like there's no edge. And... Weather experts tell us that Masada is one of the driest parts of the whole earth. It only rains once every 20 years, and yet King Herod, such was his arrogance, built a pool there. And he was going to get water to it. And so what he did, he channeled water 20 miles all the way from Jerusalem by aqueducts and pipes and tunnels and canals all the way through the wilderness to his swimming pools and his baths of hot and cold running water. Well, actually, it wasn't King Herod who built it. It was the Jewish people. What he did, he enslaved them. He press-ganged them. He got them to haul huge stones up that mountain and to lay them for his magnificent palace. Not that they were going to get anywhere near it. He was going to live, live, live there. They worked for months and months and months, perhaps years, in the baking sun, in the hottest part, the driest part of the world, without adequate food or water. One of the driest parts of their planets. And their heads and their backs and their lungs burned and so did their hatred for Herod interestingly later on in Matthew chapter 21 verse 21 Jesus is talking about faith and he says to this to the crowds that are gathered if you have faith as small as a mustard seed you can speak to this mountain and it can be removed into the sea and many scholars picture this picture of Jesus pointing to this mountain that Herod had made his own. It was known as Herod's Mountain. And they hated Herod, and they hated the sight of that mountain. 
And Jesus said, if you have faith in me, as small as a mustard seed, that mountain could be removed. It became a place of real resentment for the Jewish people. Not only did he use his own people as slaves to build his own palace, but he decided that he wanted to build a state-of-the-art, Greek-style, not Jewish, Greek-style city along the coast. The coastline was a swamp. But what he did, he used people, he used slaves to, uh, what do they call it, drain the swamp. That's a catchphrase that somebody's used recently. And, um, and, and reestablish land so that he could build a massive port and he built this huge huge port he reclaimed the land that's what i was after and he had the shipping redirected because he knew that it would make him a lot of income and formerly that they were going to athens now they would come to this city and he named this city caesarea of course after his master he used the very latest technology, a special cement called Posdana cement all the way from Italy that when it's poured into underwater, it sets even underwater. It was an amazing technology at the time. And he serviced this city with sewage systems, modern sewage systems and aqueducts of, of fresh water. He had an enormous amphitheatre built there that had the most perfect acoustics for its time. And Rome didn't pay for this. The Jewish people paid for this. Not only were they paying their temple tax out of their religious duty according to the, the, the Jewish law, but they were paying also Roman tax to Caesar as they asked Jesus about, should we stop this? They were now going to pay Herodian tax to Herod. And it said that Jewish citizens of that day were probably paying between 80 and 90% of their total income in tax. Imagine that. We've had an autumn statement, haven't we? We're all paying a bit more for everything. And we don't like it. But if you're paying 80 and 90% and you're living under that tyranny, what must it be like? for your family. Maybe the ancient Jewish prophet Isaiah caught a glimpse of what life was going to be like when he wrote this. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders in Isaiah 9. So Herod, this terrible king, this evil, narcissist, ruthless, paranoid, as we see from Matthew's description, when the wise men come to him and say, we've come for the newborn king of the Jews, what does Herod do? He slays all the newborn baby boys under two years old in the whole of his kingdom. He immediately orders the slaughter of them. Can you imagine the trauma? Can you imagine the, the, the pain of the people? Can you imagine their grief? The Jewish people needed hope, but they felt hopeless. It's quiet in here, isn't it? <laughs> but remember who Herod is. He's a wicked puppet of an evil master. We'll hear more about Augustus 
next week. But there's a bigger picture here, a cosmic picture, something that we don't see on Christmas cards, that we don't get a glimpse of in the, the tree or, or the tinsel or anything like that. As Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, whoever they are. Our struggle is against the rulers, the authorities in the heavenly realms. What Matthew is doing here, he's writing his gospel and he's using Herod as a representation for the wicked rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms who are on the beck and call of their master, Satan himself. And it's the spiritual forces of evil that wreak havoc in the world that create the misery and they multiply sin, death, and destruction. And they're doing that today. But they're in their last days. They're in their last days. But Jesus, in this particular point in history, is coming. The King of Kings is coming. The Lord of Lords is coming. Not Caesar, not Herod, not anybody else. He's coming as a baby. And how he comes is so important. So important, even for us today. As the gospel writers say, Jesus comes in the most vulnerable way. In the weakest form, as a helpless babe. To the most insignificant place, Bethlehem. And yet, the brilliant thing is, there's absolutely nothing that Satan can do. Here comes the Messiah. Against all the opulence and all the bravado and all the structures and systems of evil that were lining up and ganging up, and God says, okay, you want to come against me, dear? I'll send a baby. I'll send a baby. That's what I'll send. This is the story of the Jewish people. You see, in John Chapter 1, verse 5, he writes, the light shines and the darkness can never put it out. This is the journey of the Jewish people. If only they would recognize him. If only they would lift their eyes up above their earthly, miserable existence. If only they would see that the kingdoms and empires of this political world are not the answer. No new leader is going to be the answer, but the kingdom is coming that will rule not just for a time, but for all eternity. He's the savior of the world. He's the king of kings. He's the lord of lords. He's the ruler of all eternity. There's nothing that the devil can do because he is the Son of God, the Son of the Lord Almighty. That's what journey we're all on this Christmas. That's the journey that every single human being is on. Let me ask you this morning, what is oppressing you? What are you wrestling with? What is traumatizing you? What is giving you pain? What do you feel in the, in the grip of bringing you fear? bringing you that sense of feeling of enslavement. If you're a human this morning, I think that's everybody, our real enemy is Satan. Our real enemy is Satan. 
And his agents are sent to torment us, to enslave us, to tie us in knots, to tempt us. Sin is the ultimate enslaver, as Paul says to the Romans. All have sinned. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But John writes, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict, says John. Light has come into the world, but people love the darkness instead of the light because their deeds are evil. God sent his son, Jesus, in the face of tremendous opposition, not just in a human sense, but in a spiritual sense. But God sent his son as a little helpless baby because whatever the enemy had set up, whatever power the enemy thought he had, it was nothing compared to God. Nothing compared to God. Let me invite the musicians back up. Let's bow our heads this morning. Jesus has come. Jesus has come. This is what the Christmas story is really all about. And Jesus is asking each and every one of us this morning, what journey are you on? What journey are you on and what power are you under? Do you feel pressed down? Do you feel oppressed? Do you feel tied up, enslaved? Is sin at your door all the time? Do you feel the weight and the dirtiness of that sin? Jesus has come. Jesus has come and the government is on his shoulders. Will you recognize him as Lord of all this morning? Will you recognize him as your king of all kings? Will you invite him into your life to free you from that oppression, from that sin? That's what he came to do. That's the journey that he made from heaven to earth. He came to defeat all the powers of evil and to set up the kingdom of light for us, you and me, the people who he loved, this whole world, to come into a freedom and a liberty and a joy and a peace that only he can bring. And if you're not there yet, if you're not there yet, if you don't fully understand and it's just dawning on you that maybe the Holy Spirit is speaking to you right now, that's what Jesus came to do and he came to do it for me. Open your heart. Open your heart to him this morning. Respond to him this morning. Jesus is saying, I stand at the door and I knock. Whoever opens the door, I will come in. And I will sit and I will eat with them. I'll begin a relationship with them. Maybe you know for sure you haven't got that relationship. You can have that relationship. You can start that journey this morning. I'm going to pray a really simple prayer, just acknowledging who Jesus is and what he came to do. And you can follow it in the quietness of your own heart this morning. 
And this morning, you can invite the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, into your life to cleanse you of your sin and to get on board with him in this journey of life and eternity. This is the prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you that you came from heaven to earth. You defeated all the powers of evil. And when you died on that cross, you took my sin and you nailed it to that cross. But Jesus, yes, you died, but you rose again. You came to life. You ascended back into heaven and now you live. Lord, help me to enter into that relationship with you. Lord, I want that relationship with you. I want to know my sins, cleansed and forgiven. I want to know that journey is not a journey that I'm going alone, that you are with me by my side right there. Lord, I invite you into my life right now. And whether you're online or in the building, maybe you just want to respond this morning and say, I want to be on that journey. I prayed that prayer. If you're online this morning, you can just send us an email. Say hi at Derby City Church and just let us know that you got on board with Jesus today. You invited him uh, into your journey. If you're in the building here, maybe you just want to respond in your heart. Maybe you want to just lift your hand right now and say, I want to go on that journey with Jesus. Is is there someone this morning who just wants to respond and say, I want to go on that journey with Jesus. I've never prayed that. Thank you. God bless you. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Bless you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Father, I pray, Lord, for the people that are online, that the people are in the building here. Lord, as they begin their journey with you, God, I pray, Lord, that you would give them this assurance that their sins are forgiven and that you have joined them on this journey. Lord, come into their lives, come into their hearts, come into their minds. Help them walk this walk with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord.